I don't, I don't do real well, I don't do very well outside of extended book studies. It's, um, it's just kind of my mainstay, and so you'll notice that since I've been here, we, we get in a book, and, and we're in it until uh, you're certainly um, learning a lot from it, uh, maybe growing weary of it. But we, we found ourselves with, it, with a gap a couple of weeks ago when I knew this Sunday was upcoming, and, and kind of the default joke is, why not just have a prayer service, you know? Um, but, but I didn't want, to, didn't want to do that. And so I started praying and really, God, what would you have me share? What would you have us go through? And I'm doing this chronological Bible reading plan, which has actually been pretty miserable. It's, uh, it's one of the more unbalanced plans I've ever done. And so... Like, you'll read an eight-verse psalm one day, and then you read the entire book of Proverbs the next, and you're like, well, that's, that seems to be balanced. Um, so everywhere from, you know, 30 seconds to 30 minutes to, to knock this thing out. But God really put the, the book of Lamentations on my heart, and, it, and it's an odd thing, because you don't really read the book of Lamentations to be uplifted, Right? Like, it, it means to lament. This is a collection of laments. This is like finding a book where somebody says, my life is terrible, it's awful, I can't stand it, and then writing that for five chapters at a time. And you're just like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. I'm just going to read that this afternoon. i got a Saturday free. Can't wait to read me some laments. And so, why, God? Why would you have me read this? And this is, this is you know, three, four weeks ago or whatever. I'm reading this. Well, my secretary let me know that I had made a scheduling error and we had a gap. Oops. But what Lamentations gives us is an understanding of suffering we can't get anywhere else. Like you go into your workplace, you go to your friends, and you talk to them about suffering. You say, my home life's terrible. All these things are bad. And, and you'll get such encouraging words. It's, it's, it's okay. You'll, you'll limp through it. It's okay. You're just moving through this. This is just your season of life. It's okay. Things are going to get better for you. And that's, that's just not super encouraging, is it? Because like when you're in the midst of suffering, when you're in the midst of tremendously difficult times, it's not all that encouraging for somebody to come to you and effectively say, suck it up. Like, it's just not. When you, when you feel like your life's falling apart, when you feel like everything's going wrong, and somebody comes to you, and they offer you the incredibly encouraging wisdom of, get over it. Well, sometimes when we're in the midst of suffering, it's because of things we've done wrong. I mean, we're a fallen people. We're prone to sin. We're prone to backsliding. We, we sin, and we don't want to admit it before God, and so sometimes he allows suffering to come into our life to prompt repentance, and that's hard for us. That's hard for us. Some of us, we're this, we're this dog repeatedly returning to our vomit of, of just our, kind of our pet peeve sins, things we like to do, uh, uh, whether it be pornography, idolatry, or, or just just enjoyment of something apart from God, setting enjoyment of our free time, setting enjoyment of our leisure over God. And so he, he brings things into understanding. So we, we have this imbalance, we have this disjointed feeling, and he brings suffering, he invites it into our life to steer us back to him. And it's incredibly difficult for us in that moment to have this heart turn. 
And for so many of us, we find ourselves in that moment where, where the sufferings come back in and we want to lay the blame on somebody else. We want to cast the blame on somebody else. We want to put it at their feet and say, it's because so-and-so. It's because of this wife you gave me. It's because of these children you gave me. It's because of these things. As we start looking for people and places to place the blame for the suffering we're experiencing in our lives, God just keeps bringing it. He just keeps laying it on us. He just keeps bringing our heart low calling us, would you seek my face? Would you delight in me? Would you lay this all before me? And in that moment of, of freedom, of sweet release, when we recognize our sin, we recognize our shortcoming, he invites us back into the fellowship. He invites us back in to be restored. But man, there are other times. There's no outward sin in your life. There's no unrepentant sin going on in your life. And you're just experiencing suffering. You're completely righteous. Completely without unrepentant sin. And still things go wrong. And so you search because you, you've been told that if something's wrong in your life, you must have sinned, you must have done something wrong. And so you begin to pour over it and you're asking your wife, which is always dangerous, honey, is there any sin in me? And for like the first time in 50 years, she looks at you and says, No. I'm really surprised, to be honest, but in the last six months, you've been great. You've been an amazing husband. I see no outward manifestation of sin in you. I know your heart. You're seeking the Lord. You're waking up. You're studying his word. You're sharing with others. I see no outward manifestation of sin in you, so you go to somebody else. And you seek out your pastors. You seek out your Sunday school teachers, your life group uh, leaders, and you're asking them, do you see inadequacy in me? Nobody sees it. You begin to cry out to God, God, reveal to me my hidden sin. And you get this sense and this expectation, this understanding from God that there is nothing you're doing that's wrong. Yet you suffer. You lose a loved one. You're suffering because of, of the angst and, and the anxiety and the sinfulness of those around you, perhaps. And in that moment, we just want it to be over. We just want, like, we're living a good life, and so we want the return for that good life. The book of Lamentations absolutely speaks to both of those cases. Let's spend some time this morning walking through this book. Now, it's important for you to understand that Lamentations is attributed to the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah had the the unexpected joy of serving under five different kings. Starting from Josiah, and if you've never read the accounts of Josiah, it's amazing. He brings the people back to God unlike his grandfather, unlike his father. He's steering their hearts back to God through this reapplication of the law. But then things get really rocky when Josiah's children begin to, to serve, when they begin to lead, and they make poor decision after poor decision after poor decision. And eventually he's serving under the king Zedekiah. And it's while he's serving under the king Zedekiah that the Babylonians begin to come in, and they are they're laying siege to Jerusalem. And what we see in the book of Lamentations is the prophet Jeremiah's recounting of this. Sometime after Jerusalem is fallen... Sometime after it's fallen, he begins to recount, perhaps he's, he's gathering his notes and he's laying out in poetic form for us what it is to suffer in the midst of these things. Now, Jeremiah had spent countless hours, had been thrown in a well, 
encased in mud and left to die. He'd been betrayed by family and friend. He had been ridiculed by other prophets. And so Jeremiah would step into the room and say, gloom and doom, turn back to God. And the other prophets would come back in and say, you got to be kidding me. It's this again. It's this again. Just do whatever you want. God will make your heart glad. He will make your heart happy. He will protect the city. And what happens? The city falls. Jeremiah over and over again was godly and righteous and calling people to repentance. And all he ever got for it was trouble and woe. All he ever did was serve the Lord. And still he suffered. Look here in the book of Lamentations. The first chapter really shows us this personification of the city. And so it's lamenting the fall of Jerusalem. It starts off, it says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. Decimated. Laid low. Homes ransacked. People, children, killed, starved, marred, abused. Walls completely in shambles all around them. This city that was once the shining beacon of hope. This city that's supposed to testify to God's faithfulness, to his love. At the heart of this people that he created. They'd abandoned him. And, and, and because of their unfaithfulness, this city had fallen. It was empty. It was once full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. Imagine the splendor of a city that's completely devastated. You've got in your mind this thriving marketplace. You've got in your mind these thriving neighborhoods, this, this king who dutifully leads, these city walls that keep you safe, and everything lie in ruin. Everything was devastated. This manifestation of their sin that was brought to bear the punishment of their sins on the city. And so they, they look, and the city's bemoaning all of these things that have, that have gone on. Verse 4, the roads to Zion mourn, for none, none come to the festival. Everything has gone wrong. Everything has gone wrong. The city is completely devastated. Their way of life is no more. Everything has been upended. Why? You see, in the midst of this, they recognize that they have Erred. They have sinned. Verse 8 of chapter 1. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. She sinned grievously. She sinned grievously. She was unrepentant in her sin. The entire populace of the city, when it's looked at in a broad stroke, were not a people set apart to God, but a people apart from God. They were not a people set unto God, wholly worshiping him, but they were a people worshiping their stomachs. Their stomachs had become their God. They delighted themselves on everything they desired, and they had no desire to follow God. You see, they had fallen into this deal of only worshiping those things which brought them instant delight, instant pleasure. It's what so many of us are so prone to do. We want to see instant results. This is why gym membership spikes in January and plummets in February. You go in, you knock out five reps on the bench press, you knock out five minutes on the stair stepper, you do, the, oh man, that looks good. Oh, are you kidding me? I'm good till next January. 
right? Summer rolls around and everybody around you recognizes he was not good till next January. Gluteus Maximus, you know what I'm saying? Some of you just got that. Nervous laughter, it's helpful. People sinned grievously. They, They turned away from God. They had no desire to follow him. But still there's this there's this thing. I mean, when Jeremiah would go to the people, when he'd go to the king, and he would tell them, you need to turn away. You need to abandon these things. You need to follow God. You need to repent. What did they say? They said over and over and over again, no, he's wrong. We won't do it. Some of you have experienced this in your family members. When you go to them and you share the gospel with them, they say, no, you're wrong. I won't do it. No, you're wrong. I won't believe. And so that's, that's the plight of Jeremiah, always knowing the truth, always extending the truth, never finding a people who would follow. Never finding a people whose hearts would be softened and who would follow. But look what Jerusalem says in verse 18 of chapter 1. It has this dawning understanding. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. This understanding that they were wrong. Man, there's tremendous freedom in this. This is where we want to get people who are unrepentant. I mean, this is it. Like, you want to get them to understand that they have sinned against God. This is, this is this moment, if we can get people there, if we can extend his word before them and show them the truth of this and have them have this, this understanding, this, this premonition where they say, I, I, I understand God and the Lord is right, the suffering in my life, he is right to have brought it in. Why? Because I sinned grievously. Did not care for him. I did not follow him. I did not trust in him. I trusted in myself. I trusted in my own understanding. The Lord is right. For I have rebelled against his word. And what happens? He takes a whole nation and he removes them into captivity. And one of the things about suffering is we begin to think that when people tell us, well, it can't be that, all that bad. It can't be all that bad. And, 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 and so you bring your suffering to them. And they say, well, and, they, and they're trying to look for the positive. So you're like, well, I lost my legs. I lost my arms. And they say, well, you can still breathe. And you're like, this is, this is true. This is true. This is true. You say, all these things have gone wrong. My wife left me. My dog left me. And they're like, well, you can still have a cat. Cats have no loyalty. And she's like, what? what? A cat? Really? And so we have this sense, this understanding that just as our friends have no desire to hear how all of these things we are suffering for that neither does God, but what we see in chapter 2 of the book of Lamentations is that God desires to hear from his people. This is the amazing thing. That in the midst of suffering, that it's, it's not a virtue to, to have it bound up inside of you. It's not a virtue to lock all these things in and not to express them before God. God delights in hearing from his people. 
God delights in hearing them them cry out to him. God delights on your meditation of his movement in your life. Look what he goes on to say. God has not restrained himself in bringing his wrath upon the city. He says, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from the earth, from heaven to earth, the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. God has brought his judgment upon them. God has brought his judgment on them. Why? Because they sinned grievously. They neglected God. They forgot God. They had no desire to know Him. Look here in verse 17 of the same chapter. The Lord has done what He purposed. God's not just sitting in heaven looking for ways to smite people. Especially in terms as we look here for those in Jerusalem. God has done what He purposed there is tremendous restraint in his action. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. Deuteronomy 28 and verse 15. See, in Deuteronomy 28, God is is moving through and he's giving to Moses this understanding of, of how things will be met out. There is a blessing for obedience and there is punishment for disobedience. And he begins to spell these things out. And starting in verse 15 of chapter 28, he really says, this is what's going to happen if you disobey. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all that his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these cursings shall come upon you and overtake you. It's not that God did a bait and switch. It's not that God said, you just live your life however you want, and then someday I'm just going to bring wrath and, you know, whatever. You're just going to have to deal with it. He told them exactly how this would go. He told them. And what we find in verse 36 of chapter 28 in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, the Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And there you shall become a whore, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. God, not the Babylonian Empire, is bringing punishment upon his people for their grievous sin. God is visiting upon them the wrath that he promised them. God is visiting upon them suffering that he committed to bring them. This is a difficult thing for us. That someone who loves us, that someone who would give his son for us, would also bring punishment into our lives. This is why we have these these overly grace-accentuated understandings of God, saying that that, that God is is nothing but but rainbows and warm fuzzies towards us, and we can live our lives however the heck we want to, and nothing will ever happen to us. That's not loving. That's That's being permissive. If I don't love my children, I let them act however they want to, I let them experience anything they want to. I let them stick things in, in light sockets and, and just you know, feel the pain of that and hopefully not repeat it. 
I let them you know, ride bicycles without helmets. I let them drink poison. I let them do all of these things. Why? Because I love them so much I just can't tell them no. It's not loving. It's not loving. Not setting boundaries, not setting up this understanding, and then not bringing punishment for corrective purposes is not loving. It's incredibly unloving, removed, remote, and uninvolved. God loves his people. God demonstrated incredible patience towards them. He sent them men of God over and over and over again who cried out to them, return, repent, turn away. They put them to death. They'd throw them in prison. They would strip them, beat them, mock them. He's incredibly patient, incredibly loving, incredibly kind. And he brings perfectly measured punishment to them. Look at this description here, starting in verses 18 and 19. Jeremiah wants us to understand the depths of what has happened here. He says, Their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Even in devastation, Jeremiah calls upon the rocks to be bereft. He calls upon the rocks. He's calling on everything, the walls which were laid low. And what he says to them is cry, mourn, weep. Recognize the suffering that God has brought upon you and cry out for forgiveness in the midst of it. He's calling upon them, even in the midst of their punishment, to repent. He's calling on them, even in the midst of their punishment, to see God. To recognize it's God that brought this based upon their reckless, wanton, gross immorality and grievous sin. He's brought this so that he might bring them back together. He's brought this so that they might be restored. He's brought this so that they might understand the serious error and danger of their consequences. And so many of us are blind to the consequences of life. You and your wife, you and your husband, there's, there's no intimacy, there's, no, there's, there's just no love in there. You have not fostered your relationship between your children or your coworkers or your friends, and you wonder, why is this? Jeremiah would in, entreat you, he would beg you, and he would say, seek God. Seek his face, ask him if there is anything in you that is far from him. Is there anything in you that that needs to be examined, that needs to be looked at? But some of us, even in the middle of looking at these things and and asking others, like we're not always the best examiners of ourselves, are we? Like we tend to think that we do better than we really do. This is why wives are an especially good gift to their husbands. Husbands not so much to their wives. But we have these, these, these helpers that God has given to us that can go to us that, 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 that when we ask them can spot and point out gently, lovingly, much more so than I am ever able. My inadequacies, my failings. This is what a church family does well. Consequently, this is also what a church family does really poorly. 
Church families, sometimes we get hypervigilant at pointing out others' inadequacies that we neglect to recognize our own. And so we go to people and we say, oh, let me just tell you all the ways God has shown me that you're such a complete and abject failure. Would you know this from me? Can I tell you this? Uh, let me list the ways. Uh, fat, ugly, lazy, slovenly. Wait, let me start over again. Fat, uh, no, hold on, I missed it. Oh, I had an acronym for this at home. Okay, forget the acronym. Fat, ugly, lazy. And, and so we begin to get this picture that we're just fat, ugly, and lazy. And we, and we say, really? Like, this is what you're bringing to me? And so we begin to not trust the words that God gives to those around us. As, as, as a church, largely we've abused this. What we find in others are those things we struggle with in ourselves. And so we go to them and we point out these particular things that we don't care for in ourselves or in our society. And we point them out in those we run into. It's not loving. It's not kind. It's not done from a desire to restore somebody. It's done from a desire to bring them low. When you confront someone in their sin, there should be tears in your eyes. There should be anxiousness in your stomach. And there should be brokenness in you for them. You're calling out someone else's sin has nothing to do with making them a better person for your enjoyment, but restoring them to a relationship with God on which you are not a part of. It's an incredible gift entrusted to the body that we would be so involved and invested in one another's lives that we could go to our brother or our sister in the Lord and say, I love you, I care for you deeply. I see weakness in you. See sin in you. I want to help you be returned, restored to the Lord. I'm not here to accuse you. I'm not here to be unloving. In fact, this is incredibly difficult for me and I have not wanted to do, but I love you in the Lord so much that he has laid you on my heart to share this with you. People don't always respond well to this. The one who's not yet ready to repent, the one who's not yet had their hearts softened by God, will respond negatively to their sin being shown before them. It's not our job to be the Holy Spirit in someone else's life. Do you hear me? Do you understand me in this? But it's absolutely our job to love people enough to point out when what they're doing is wrong. I'm incredibly thankful that I have a wife that does this, that I have friends that do this, that I have children that inadvertently do this? Okay, I'm not so thankful about that. It's a blessing. It's a blessing to have people that love you enough to tell you that what you're doing is wrong. That the way you said something hurts someone. It's incredibly loving. It's an incredible thing to do. Look here in chapter 3. The difficult thing for us is not that when we're, we're actively being stupid, sinful, and unrepentant, we suffer. Like, we, we get that. It's a natural consequence. You break the law, you go to jail. You suffer, you disobey God, you experience suffering and punishment for it as he's trying to bring you back. But Jeremiah had done nothing wrong. Incredibly faithful would be an accurate description of Jeremiah. Faithful 
over five kings. Now, probably the difficult thing for Jeremiah, and this is, this is me just, just adding this in. You're not going to find this in here. So take it or leave it. But, but for me, it's like I think about it in this. Jeremiah started under King Josiah. So he had this understanding of what it was like when things went well. And everything that went well under Josiah's reign was centered on what? The reestablishment and incorporation of the law, respecting the word and living life in adherence to it. So he had this understanding of what it's like to follow God and to do so well. And then over the course of his life, he saw it get worse and worse and worse and worse. And yet he remained incredibly faithful. Incredibly faithful, repeatedly going and expressing messages that no one wanted to hear. Like suffering, and yet God would lay it on his heart. Go and talk to them again. So he'd go, and he'd suffer, and God would lay it on his heart again. He'd go and share, and he'd suffer more. And God would lay it on his heart again. He'd go, and he'd suffer more. He repeatedly suffered for his faithfulness. That God would find us faithful and allow us to suffer for his great name. Jeremiah starts chapter 3 and he says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. It doesn't really read like somebody who has not messed up, does it? But this is Jeremiah writing. He's writing from this first person perspective. Verse 4, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. This is a faithful man. And so all over the room we have people break out and say, if that's what it is to be faithful, find me faithless. If that's what it is to be faithful, if this is what it is, if this is how God treats those who love him, who serve him, then I want no part of him. Sometimes we suffer so that others around us might see it and be found faithful along with us. Some of us, God is rising up and he's allowing us to suffer so that he might spur faithfulness in someone else's heart. This is hard. This is a difficult message for us to hear, for us to understand. Jeremiah goes on, verses 16 through 19, he has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. There was no food left. And when they would sweep up the, the remnants of the wheat and they would make it into bread, they would find gravel, they would find bits of rock in the bread. And, and so when he's eating this bread, he's finding dirt and dust and all these things baked in with it. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance is perished. And so is my hope from the Lord. Jeremiah's at the point of breaking. It, it, it's not false suffering that he's looking out. He's not looking to elicit the pity or the, oh, like you've had a hard day, haven't you? He wants us to understand that suffering is real. Some of us suffer, we go through tremendous difficulties, but we do not feel validated, we do not feel cared for because people around us don't seem to care. God cares. God cares. His heart is broken for the suffering, especially the suffering of his faithful. Jeremiah's suffering was not diminished because of his faithfulness. In fact, he gives us this list so that we might understand he suffered right along with the rest of them. He's almost to the point of breaking. He says, my affliction 
has, has brought me to this point. My endurance has perished. He's got nothing left in him. But look what he goes on to say. But I call this to mind. Verse 21. Something is stirring in him. Something is being prompted in him. But I call this to mind. And therefore I have hope. It's not the cessation of suffering. It's not the cessation of suffering. It's not that he's reached the last tenth of a mile before the marathon of suffering is over. And he says, look, I can see daylight. I can see the end in sight. I know this is coming to an end. These things would spur hope in him, but that's not what he sees. He recognizes, because of what God has told him, that 70 years of persecution, 70 years of being brought into this empire will last. Suffering will continue over the course of his life. He will die still seeing the people of God be persecuted. What is it then? It's verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. This can sustain the faithful sufferer. This can call back the one who's engaged in idolatry. This can call back the one who's following sinfulness. This can call back the one who's following their own way. This can call back the one whose stomach is their God. This can call back the wayward one and the faithful one together. His steadfast love never ceases. God's signature characteristic is his covenant faithful love, which knows no end. It never ceases. Jeremiah moves on and he describes it, and he says his mercies, they never come to an end. Can you imagine in the middle of tremendous suffering, in the, master, in the midst of tremendous loss, looking up, finding hope in God, and saying, God, your mercies know no end. There's no end to your mercies. It's not that he's caught this moment of peace. It's not that he's caught this moment of blissful surrender. And in the midst of it, there's this bubble around him where he's not hungry, where he doesn't see people dying, where he doesn't see children and women dying in the streets for lack of food. In the midst of this, watching these things transpire, he calls out and he says, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah gives us a tremendous picture of what it is to suffer well. What it is to endure in the midst of sufferings. And what it is to know God in an incredibly different way, in an incredibly non-Western American way. So many of our relationships are centered around what have you done for me lately? Am I currently experiencing your love? I don't feel loved right now. I don't feel wanted right now. I don't feel appreciated right now. The number of relationships that break up, that center on this thing, I no longer love him or her. I just don't feel love for you right now. Jeremiah comes in in the middle of this. He says, God's love knows no end. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. God's faithfulness to you is not dependent upon your obedience to him. We've got to understand that. It's not that when you head down the road of sin, God just says, you know what, I'm so done with Tim. I'm so done with Brad. I'm so done with Zach. I'm so done with Christine. I just, you know, they're just more trouble than they're worth. 
God is invested in you. God, through the shed blood of his son, is invested in you, is in it for your sanctification, for your holiness, and he will bring things into your life to produce them. And some of us will suffer not as casualties of our own sin, but the sin of those around us. We will see our country, our government make sinful choices and decisions, and we will suffer not as people who are disobedient, but as people who are incredibly faithful. The world over is filled full of brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering in faithfulness. Suffering for nothing other than they have chosen to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and they were born in a country that does not hold that same conviction. Suffering because they were born in a family that does not worship the God that has called them, that has awakened them, that has called them into salvation and so their family seeks to end their lives. God's faithfulness to them is not dependent upon their faithfulness to him. God is incredibly faithful. His faithfulness is unshaken. His faithfulness knows no end. Look what verse 31 says in chapter 3. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause, but though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. God's compassion is not based upon our ability to get it right, but is directly tied to the extent of his love. What a true blessing for us. That God's love for us knows no end. Why? Not because we're so capable of being lovable and adorable and we've got these little shots of us sitting with a teddy bear and God looks at it and says, oh, look how cute and cuddly they used to be. Now they're, they're a wretch, but I remember when they were a child. God's faithfulness, faithfulness to us is dependent upon our relationship with his son who is supremely faithful. Jesus had the incredibly supreme display of faithfulness before the Father, faithfulness to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jeremiah is calling the people to center themselves on God's faithfulness, not their ability to endure to see the cessation of punishment, to say, oh, I can learn to serve under this new master, but that they might return the sinful one and that the faithful one might endure. Why? Based upon God's promises of faithfulness centered in the person of Jesus. Verse 22 of chapter 4 in the book of Lamentations tells us that the, the punishment for your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. I will keep you in exile no longer. Jeremiah knows an end is coming. And chapter 5 is this prayer, praying that God would restore them, that he would keep it before him, that he would keep it before his eyes. This is why he says in verse 19, But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. The security and promise for the Israelites is the same as the security and promise for the Christian, that God's reign knows no end. That he sits on a throne unshaken by the, the, the temporary and tertiary decisions that are made here on this earth. That God is not waiting for people to choose and, and make decisions, God's reign is not decidedly swayed by the decisions of mankind, but his reign is forever. Now what I want you to recognize is this last prayer that Jeremiah prays in verse 21 of chapter 5. 
He's praying on behalf of a people that have not yet found themselves faithful. He's praying on behalf of a people that, that do not yet want to hear the message. Jeremiah knows it's going to take exile to breed faithfulness in this people. He knows the punishment of God is going to continue to have to work to produce repentance in them. And so yet in the midst of this, he calls out in verse 21, he says, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. It is a good prayer to pray on behalf of those around you. You see sinning, you see far off, you see moving away from God, saying, God, restore them. Renew their days of old. God, bring them back into this understanding, into this relationship. God, help them to seek you. Awaken them to their sinfulness. God, bring whatever is coming into their life so that they might know you and cry out to you and worship you once again. See, the incredible message of of lamentations is for the, for the one suffering because of their sin and the one suffering in the midst of their faithfulness. It's the same message. It's the faithfulness of God. It's this God who, at, at the heart of all things, is steadfast. It's this God who, at the heart of all things, remains true, whose mercies know no end, they are new every morning that his faithfulness will endure our egregious sin, that his faithfulness will endure any wayward spirit. And in the midst of his faithfulness, he's not inflicting pain from his heart, but he's doing it, calling us back into himself, bringing these things into our life that we might be restored to him. That's the greatness of our God. He doesn't look at us and say, I'm done with you. He looks at us and says, I am invested in you, in Jesus Christ. And what we see in Jeremiah is an incredibly faithful one who suffered for others. It's the same thing we see in Jesus. Jeremiah lays down this precursor of the sufferings of Christ that Jeremiah was incredibly faithful and loving and going to people and calling out their sin and they punished him for it. In Isaiah 53, verses two through five, we get this same sense of Jesus, this prophecy of Jesus that says, for he, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. I'm a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. Everything's going wrong around Jeremiah. He demonstrates incredible faithfulness to God because he recognizes that the heart of God is one whose faithfulness knows no end. God sent his son that he might suffer for you and for me. And Paul, writing about this and, and focusing on 
what Isaiah wrote there in chapter 53, wrote these words to us in Philippians chapter 2, and let this be where we end today. Speaking of Jesus, he says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ, incredibly faithful, faced tremendous difficulty, surrendered his life, suffered and died so that you and I might be restored to God. Jeremiah and Jesus give us an incredible picture of what faithfulness looks like. Jeremiah calls to those of us who are wayward, who have sinned, who have unrepentant sin dwelling in our hearts, and he calls on us to repent, to seek the face of the Lord. Quit suffering needlessly. Be restored to God. And he calls to you. He calls to you who are doing tremendous suffering, though you're doing nothing wrong. And he says, don't let your suffering change your understanding of who God is is. Friends, God is faithful. Don't be tempted to doubt the faithfulness of God in the midst of your suffering. Can I pray for us? Father, thank you for your goodness to us. God, this is one of these messages that I confess that it's just something that I'm working out in my own heart. It's not something I was ever taught. I suspect it's not something many of us in this room were ever taught. And so we find ourselves in the midst of suffering and, and, and life just really being terrible, and we don't know how to respond. So God, I pray that you would give us a fresh anointing, a fresh sense of your presence and your spirit in the midst of our present and coming sufferings. God, help us to trust in you and in your faithfulness. God, help us to trust in you. Even in those times we feel far from you, we feel like everything is going wrong. God, help us to be faithful in the midst of those times. Not to seek an easier way or lesser, a robe with less punishment, God, but that we would cry out to you in the midst of those times, that we would pour out our sufferings before you because we know that you are a God who longs to hear from his people. God, help us to be near to those who suffer when we find ourselves not suffering. Help us to lift them up, to pray for them often, and sometimes just sit quietly, weep with them. God, we desire to be a faithful people living in a fallen world, and that's difficult. So God, we cry out to you and we ask that you would move in salvation to call our brothers and sisters who are far off from you into light, from darkness to light, from death to life. And God, we ask that those of us who have already surrendered our lives, God, we just have a fresh sense of your faithfulness each and every morning. Father, you are so good to us. Help us to be faithful to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.